This is Rabbi Sharon Brous, Rabbi Adi Kar, where we're dedicated to reinvigorating Jewish community, ritual, and learning, all while laying the foundation for a just and loving society. You're listening to Ikar's podcast, where you can hear our sermons from Shabbat and holidays, our teachings, our guest speakers, basically anything we think worth hearing that we can capture and stream, you can listen to right here. The whole Megillah. I mean, literally the whole Megillah. So thank you so much for being with us. So these words, Misha Nichnas Adar Marbim Besimcha, the one who enters into the month of Adar enters with joy. And as you can see on the top of your source sheet, that's actually only the second part of the phrase. Uh, the beginning of it, which comes from Masachat Tanit, from the Talmud and Tractate Tanit, says, Kashem she minichnas av mimatin besimcha, kach mishenichnas adar marbim besimcha. Just as when we enter the month of Av, we hold a spirit of sadness and grief. When we come to this month, the month of Adar, we come in with joy. And maybe the half-hearted singing this morning is an indication that this year there's a little bit of a misalignment between what our calendar is calling us to and where our hearts are calling us to. Either that or you're just being shy today. I can't tell. Or we don't know the song. <laughs> so I want to talk about what happens when we're not in full alignment with where our hearts place us and where our calendar places us. We can either escape from one into the other. We can enter delirious joy and disconnect ourselves from the reality of our times. Or we can abandon the call of our tradition, the call of thousands of years, and we can lean into the fear and the anxiety and the terror of our time. Or we can try to navigate our way between the two. What I want to do with us this morning for a few minutes of learning together is try to figure out how we might hold a tradition that calls us into joy and laughter and song when we come to this time of year and a world that looks the way our world looks in this moment. I'm sure that many of you heard that today has been proclaimed to be a national day of hate. Did you know that? So white supremacists and white nationalists around the country declared that this would be a day for harassment and terrorizing of the Jewish community of the United States of America. And notifications have gone out around the country that we should be extra vigilant in this time. And it's true that the gallows humor tends to prevail in moments like this. And I heard all kinds of legitimately funny responses to this, like what are the white nationalists doing tomorrow? Is that not also a day of hate for them? And as Ben shared with me just before Shabbat, lots of Jews trying to understand if the national day of hate started with sundown yesterday or did it start this morning? Like, are they on Jewish time or not? And it's funny. It's funny until it's not. And we hope that it's not. We hope that we don't get to the place where it's not this time around. But it's also very hard to look into the face of a national day of hate targeting our Jewish community 
and targeting all the other folks that these white nationalists also wish weren't a part of this country, including black and Latino sisters and brothers and family, including trans people, including immigrants, including Muslims, and so many more. It's hard not to think about what happened just in our own neighborhood last week when two Jews were shot on their way out of Minyan. It's hard not to think about the giant swastika flag that was posted right outside of LACMA, just two doors up on this street. So on one hand, we might think we don't want to give air to this idea, and we make jokes so that we can laugh and try to reclaim some of the joy of the moment. On the other hand, there's no question that we're living through a moment in which these ideas have shifted in a dramatic way from the margins to the mainstream. And that makes it very hard for some of us to engage Adar this year, this month of joy with a full and open heart. But if we're really honest, it's not just the National Day of Hate and the rise in anti-Semitism and white nationalism and extremism here in America that makes it hard to celebrate with a full heart in this moment, is it? Because for many of us, we will forever associate Purim which is the reason that the great joy comes this time of year with a bad actor named Baruch Goldstein, who on Purim three decades ago walked into the cave of Machpelah and murdered 29 Muslim worshipers while they were at prayer. And maybe at some point over the course of the last three decades, we perceived that Baruch Goldstein and his students and those who followed in his path were like the white nationalists in America, just a fringe minority. But as we've discussed here over the course of the last couple of months, now it is those very people, the protégés of that murderer, who are not only in the mainstream, but are actually in the ministerial positions in the state of Israel. And so as I enter the month of Adar this month, I enter it with fear and with trepidation. And I want for us to explore together what resources our tradition leaves us, hints, secrets, that might help us learn how to navigate such complicated times as the ones we're in. So we're going to do a little bit of learning together. I want to invite you to take a look at your shore sheet. And this is a quote that comes from this week's parasha, from Parsha Truma. As we heard this morning, there are many gifts that the people were told they needed to bring in the desert in order to build this desert tabernacle, this incredibly beautiful, magnificent, mobile, sacred home. And among those gifts, you see that our people were called to bring gold and silver and copper and blue and purple and crimson yarn and fine linen and goat's hair and tanned ram skins and dolphin skins, and acacia wood, and oils, and spices, and all kinds of other things that you might wonder, how in the world did they find these things in the desert? And of course, as every B'nai Mitzvah kid who's ever become B'nai Mitzvah on Parsha Truma asks, there is an explanation for the dolphin skins, but we're not going to get into it. But as miraculous as those many items are, our rabbis are really taken by one of the items on this list that might not seem like a miracle, but is if you really think about it. And that is the Atze Shitim. This is the acacia wood. Because in fact, acacia wood is not indigenous to the Sinai Desert. 
And so our rabbis do wonder, just as they wondered, how could they have dolphin skins? Where in the world were they supposed to find enough acacia wood in order to use it for all of the many usages that they're called to in the parsha? I think it's 24 or 29 times in the book of Exodus that we see a call to the, uh, to the Atze Shittim. They're used for all kinds of holy purposes, this wood, in the Mishkan. So I want to invite you to take a moment and turn to the person who's next to you. And I want to invite you to read the first Midrash on this page that comes from Midrash Tanhuma. Rashi cites this Midrash, but he cites it a little bit differently from the way the original plays out. So I want to invite you to just read through Midrash Tanhuma from Truma 914. And let's see what it is that our rabbis offer as one of the explanations of how it could be that these people, the Israelites in the desert, fresh out of hundreds of years of enslavement, had the ability to, to find enough acacia wood in order to make the beautiful Mishkan. I'm going to give you about two minutes, so please turn to someone next to you, and let's see what you think. Not only what Midrash Tanhuma is offering, but what it comes to teach us. I want to tell you how much joy it gives me to be in a room full of people studying Torah. So what does Midrash Tanhuma say is the explanation for how it is that these people miraculously were able to find acacia wood for the holiest purposes in the desert? So answers. Wevan? Yeah, so the, these trees were planted and they were planted there for a reason. And who planted them? They were planted by Jacob and by Jacob's sons because Jacob knew, remember, from his grandfather Abraham, that the people would go down into Egypt and that they would be brutally enslaved there and they would be there for hundreds of years. But he also knew from his grandfather Jacob that they would come up out of Egypt one day and when they did, they would need the tools to make something holy for God. So what did Jacob tell his children in order to convince them that they needed to plant these trees. Does anyone, anyone have an idea? What is the message of this Midrash? What's the meaning of this? What is the, let me phrase it differently. What is the meaning of the Atse Shittim, of the, of the acacia wood uh, trees in light of this Midrash? Okay, so the acacia wood becomes the symbol of hope, right? Because even in the darkest moments, the people would look at these trees and acacia wood trees, by the way, they grow very, very tall. And they would look out even in the hardest of times, even when they were 100 years away from the liberation, and they would see the trees and they would think, one day, one day we will get out of here. And just knowing when you're going through hell that it doesn't end there is, is a transmission of hope, generation to generation. I may not make it out of here alive, but my children will, or my grandchildren will. Ultimately, there will be a better future than the present we're in right now. Great. Yes? Okay, so part of what I think, tell me if I'm getting you right, Janine, is that part of what the Israelites learned is that they have to plant for their own future, right? That what we put into the earth, the way that we leave the earth, is not only about us in this moment, but is actually about the future. And so it not only gave them hope, but hopefully helped them feel more responsible for the very earth that they were in, right? Yes, Mark. 
Yeah, that's great. Did, I don't know if everyone heard what Mark said. He said, part of the messaging here is that we are responsible for our own redemption. So we have, a, this is a very powerful message for Jacob to deliver to his children and grandchildren. By the way, we don't know if Jacob told them that they would become enslaved. We know that he tried, he wanted to, but the rabbis say the message didn't come out. Like he couldn't do it. It's very hard. Imagine telling people you love you're about to go through hell. But we know that he was able to do this, to plant within them a message of hope, a message of responsibility, even when they were dispossessed and abused and humiliated, a message of responsibility to our earth, and a message of responsibility to themselves and each other in the journey of their own redemption, okay, toward their own redemption. That's a very powerful message. And I invite us to think for a moment about the seeds that have been planted in our own hearts, in our own lives, from generations before, that give us the strength to survive the most difficult moments. And that can be individually, trees that were planted, seeds that were, seeds that were planted by our own parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, or it can be for us communally, collectively. What are the Jewish seeds that are alive in this space, in this moment, that will help us to prevail over whatever the challenges are of our time. And by the way, in the last six, seven years, we faced a lot of challenges and we have survived collectively. And part of the reason of that survival is because we knew and understood that we had the, the muscle memory, we had the tools within in order to survive incredible challenge. Now that's a good sermon and I, we can end here and I think my husband would prefer if I did end here, except that's not the end of the story this morning. So we're gonna keep going because a little bit further in Midrash Tanchuma, you're gonna see a very different message for us to draw from, uh, from the Atze Shittim. Rabbi Shmuel, son of Rabbi Nachman said that there were actually 24 different varieties of cedar but only seven of them were selected for the sacred work inside uh, of building the Mishkan. And we learned that the Mishkan was built uh, from the acacia wood. So this is one of the seven that was chosen. And the question is, why did God call them Shittim? Why was it called acacia wood? But specifically, why it says, Lama Koreotam Atse Shittim? Why the language of Atse Shittim? And look at what the answer is that Midrash Tanchuma brings. In order to repair what would one day happen in the place of Shittim. What one day happened in the place of Shittim? What is Midrash Tanchuma talking about? Does anyone know without turning the page? Other than Rabbi Michael Paley or the 30 other rabbis in the room right now? <laughs> okay, 40? It's a rainy day, so a lot stayed home. <laughs> okay, so quickly turn your page and you'll see exactly what happened in Shittim. As the Israelites progressed through the desert and many years passed, they found themselves in a place called Shittim. And in that place, disaster struck. Because you might remember that the women of Moab, because it's always the women's fault, we're able to lure the good, holy Israelite men away from their commitment to their wives and to their God. And the Israelite men ended up 
whoring with the Moabite women, according to the language of our tradition. This is Numbers 25, verses 1 and 2, 1 through 5. And, and, and two, uh, two of these, you might remember Zimri and Cosby decide that they're going to have sex right, on the, right in front of the most sacred place, and it is an act that profanes God and profanes the place. And then a brave, zealous warrior for our people named Pinchas takes a staff, and he stabs them both through the heart, one and the other at the same time. Remember that story? That happened in a place called Shittim. Okay, that's very Shitty. So go back now. To Midrash Tanhuma. So what happens, according to Midrash Tanhuma, is that in this moment, which is years before, Zimri and Kozbi are going to be whoring in front of this very sacred place and worshiping Baal Peor. The Israelite people don't know that that's going to happen, but God does. And so these trees are actually called not just cedar trees, not just Eitzim or any of the other 24 names of cedar, but they're called Shittim. Why? Because this is, remember we talked on Rosh Hashanah this year about subversive sequels, Judy Klitzner's brilliant idea, and she's coming in the spring to teach here. The idea that our tradition is always in conversation with layers and layers, generations apart of tradition. And sometimes you can see that stories that begin in one book end up in another book with a sequel that subverts the original message from the original book, right? Remember that idea? Was anyone awake at Rosh Hashanah? Yeah. Well, what's happening here is something even equally interesting or even more. This is a subversive, not a subversive sequel, it's a subversive prequel because what's happening is when the Israelite people in our parsha are told that they're going to be building a mishkan out of Atse Shittim, they're doing it not only to honor the hope and the responsibility and connectedness to the earth and their responsibility to, the, to each other in their own liberation, but they're actually doing it in order to redeem preemptively the people from the terrible mistake that they're going to make almost a generation later. Okay, so building something holy out of Shittim is not only a response to the past, it is, it is itself a response to something that has not yet unfolded. This is a multi-directional messaging that's happening with the Atze Shittim. By the way, I happen to be, I totally nerded out on Atze Shittim this week, and I, and the whole time I was re working on this, I was singing to myself, Atze Shittim Omdim, Atze Shittim Omdim. Does anyone know that song? Right, so, but I, but I thought it was a play on words because I thought the real words were atze zetim omdim, which means the olive trees are standing, and we learn in religious school that we celebrate when the olive trees are standing because it means that there's been peace for over a hundred years. But actually, the real song is atze shitim omdim, which comes directly from the Torah, and that's the way Israelis know it. And the reason that American Jews know it as atze zetim omdim is because they did not want religious school children to say the word. She team. I promise you this is at least what Google tells me is the true story. So the real message of Atse Shitimomdim is that the that the acacia wood trees are standing. The message of hope is standing. The message of responsibility is standing. 
And there's a multi-directional messaging to that, which means not only are our ancestors planting the seeds for us to find strength in this moment, but in the future, we might even undermine our own best values. And what we do today will be a preemptive repair for those terrible errors and mistakes in the future. In just over a week, we're going to be celebrating Purim. And the entire story of Purim is in many ways a preemptive sequel, a preemptive, a subversive prequel or a preemptive sequel to the story of our Jewish people. The entire story is rooted in a narrative of a plot and plan that was made to serve one person's one person's desires, and then is flipped on its head in order to do exactly the opposite. And, and, and the Midrashim abound here to help us understand about the ways that we plan for something and then it's totally upended in a way that perhaps nobody could have imagined. And I want to just invite us to think for a moment that this is not the first national day of hate that our people has survived through. That if you take a look at the Megillah, which we will together next week, you see that, that Haman went before King Ahasuerus, and, and Haman was very specific in his, desire, in his designs for the people. And letters were sent across all of the king's provinces with orders to destroy and slay and exterminate all of the Jews, young and old, women and children. And maybe if we hadn't been genocided in living memory, maybe then we could think of this as a cartoonish metaphor. But his desire was for all of us to die. And he desired that it would happen on a national day of hate. And that day was going to be the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, a day that we will reach next week. But if you continue past chapter 3 in this Megillah, and you continue to chapters 8 and chapter 9, you see that not only were Haman's plans thwarted, but that very day, the 13th of Adar, the 14th of Adar, and the 15th of Adar became the day, not of our destruction, but the day of our victory and of our celebration. And what that means to us is that the seed has been planted for our redemption, such that the very thing, the Atse Shittim, that one day will manifest as part of our own self-destruction will also be part of our redemption. The 13th and the 14th of Adar intended to be the time of our destruction become the time of our national awakening and repentance. And I want to, if I may, draw a line between what our people did in Shittim in the desert that day, in which they took something so holy and so necessary in this world, the connection to the Kaddish Baruch Hu and the sacred space that we have built in the desert. And they transformed it into something utterly unrecognizable before all the people. And I would like to invite you to think about the connection between that and what Baruch Goldstein did in the cave of Machpelah 29 years ago. Taking something so holy, so filled with possibility, this day that calls us to joy and togetherness, to love and justice year after year for thousands of years, and he transformed it into something unrecognizable. And yet, if you look at the end of that second Midrash from Tanchuma, a very important assertion is made by our tradition. Not only was the tabernacle in the, in the desert times made from the acacia wood, but it says that every ark, kol aron Yisrael osin, every ark that the Jewish people will make will also be made of that wood. 
because it wasn't destroyed, even by the terrible behavior of our own people in that place. And it still stands. And every time we build an ark out of wood today, we are reaffirming the hope and the responsibility and the connectedness that was part of the original intention of that symbol. As we approach Purim this year, on the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of, the Ukraine, of Ukraine, I call us to remember the images from Dnipro last year. I call us to remember the images of Jews in the midst of bombed out cities, coming together and putting on pirates hats and construction hats and silly sunglasses in Odessa, in Dnipro, in Kyiv, and affirming that no matter what has happened, the tools that we have remain the strongest possible tools to affirm our resiliency as a people. And this week, perhaps our greatest response to the, to the rage and the anger of those who would do us harm in this country, and the greatest response to the growing violent extremism of our own people in the other country that we love so much, the greatest response is to affirm the original intent of those seeds that were planted for us so many years ago. La Yehudim, Haita, Ora, Vesimcha, Vesason, Vikar. And then will the Jewish people be able to enjoy light and gladness and happiness and honor just as we were intended to. Shabbat Shalom. Hi, it's Rabbi Brass again. Thank you so much for listening. Want more content like this? I hope you'll subscribe. And please consider making a contribution to Ikar so we can continue to work toward the fulfillment of our mission to reanimate Jewish life, to embody moral courage, to nurture the spirit, and to work to decipher what it means to be a human being in the world today. Visit our website at ikar.org. That's I K A R.org. And I hope to see you, maybe even in person, sometime soon. <laughs>